living in the badlands, right? And uh, <clears throat> Genesis 18, let's start with verse 16. The scripture says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's pretty bold. <laughs> but what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away, not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be, far be it from you. Uh, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? How do we live in the badlands? That's the question, okay? Abraham was old. Sarah was old. They both been promised a child. That child has been promised that in a year it would be there. In one translation of the Bible, it referred to Abraham and Sarah not only being old, but they were good as dead, is what Scripture says. And they've given, been given the promise that they were going to have a son. And this is the good news. Here's the bad news. God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And there seems to be a conflict here. God told Abraham that he would be a blessing to the whole earth. And the whole earth included Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's now struggling with living in the badlands. Is the term badlands in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Neither. I got it from the Lion King, okay? He's walking through this valley of bones, the elephants and all that, Simba was. Anyway, it's a geographical term for where plant life barely exists. Most of the surface is rock and dirt. And the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, that was it. Sodom and Gomorrah were spiritually the badlands. It was not just because of the sexual sin that was going on among them. You know, many times when we refer to Sodom and Gomorrah, we immediately defer in our thinking to their sexual sin. That being said, in the next chapter, there's an appalling story of a group of men standing outside of a house, surrounding it, ready to commit a gang rape. And this was how bad the Badlands had become. It wasn't just about this, however. There was a complete absence of justice in those two cities. The scripture says, I have heard the cries of my people. And the word cries is the word in scripture when it used is pertaining to injustice. There was just simply no justice in Sodom and Gomorrah. The poor were powerless at the hands of the rich. Jeremiah uses the word outcry 
as a person who screams out in pain in the course of being attacked. Abraham is living in the shadow of the badlands. But guess what? So do we. I'm not talking about the big, bad, horrible world out there versus the little, lovely, lovable us. The truth is, we're all still broken and a part of the problem. However, the good news there is we're part of the answer too. Now, how do we live in the badlands? Number one, see the desperate need of we in our world. We need the good reign of God. In verse 20, the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous. Back in 1973, an academic wrote a book called The Ascent of Man. And the idea of the book is that we were all gradually getting better. Society was supposedly getting better according to his premise. Uh, he was saying we're improving as a human race, you know, and we could probably be fooled into believing that as we look at all the technological advances around the world. However, there's a problem with that thinking. It may be true that we're advancing technologically. The Bible says, though, that our world is broken. When God said that Sodom's sin was great and grievous, these were the same words that he used when he spoke to Noah. The badlands are bad. The temptation of Christians is to say, well, let's just get out of here. Jesus, come quickly. And I understand that prayer, okay? The Bible clearly teaches rapture theology. He's coming back to get his bride one of these days, okay? But we got to be careful to not get into what I call the escapology, eschatology theology. And if you want to remember that, it's the escapology, eschatology theology. That's when we get into the mindset, let's just get out of this place and let's let the world rot behind us. You know, the message from Jesus is not sign here and then you're a follower of Jesus, go to heaven and let's get out of here. When you sign up to follow Jesus, okay, the message is this. We join the kingdom of God. We live here right now, drawing people into the good reign of King Jesus. And then we get to go to heaven. Our task, by the help of the Holy Spirit, is to invite people into the good rule of God. Some of us here today, maybe, need to bow our knees to the good king. Some of us are living our lives independently. We have the franchise on me. God is inviting us to make him king. We get to discover the shalom, the peace of God, and enjoy that peace living here in his kingdom. Number two, let's take our place in the family that blesses. The people call to be grace dispensers. Have you ever been called a grace dispenser? You know, it's interesting that God calls us the salt and the light because the salt is usually put in to a, uh, a dispenser and you pour it out accordingly. But verse 18 says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Please notice that Abraham is not called to be an individual superhero. He's called to make a family, a community, a nation that will be a blessing to the world. You know, Hollywood creates this image of people who saved the world. Does the name Jack Bauer mean anything to you? 
used the wrong one. Have you ever heard of a show called 24? Not at me, kind of. Okay. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you didn't. Well, here's Jack Bauer's job on the show 24, okay? He has 24 hours to save the world. For 10 years, right on our TVs, we've watched him do it, okay? He rescues the world from nuclear holocaust every season that his show is on, okay? And after the season is over, he saved the world, he sits down and makes a cup of coffee for everyone. I know you've heard this one. Bond. James Bond. Okay? You know, we can foster this idea of individualism in the church. You know, we have superheroes, super people of faith, and all of those things. We can do that. But it's not about one person changing the world. It's about us changing our world. And that's one of the greatest reasons that we have churches. God has created just not, not just persons that are grace dispensers, the churches that join together in the same mindset and the same heart and the same belief that they can change the world. The church is a great uh, grace dispenser. In Philip, one of Philip Yancey's books, he made a statement that has impacted me. He states, in my lifelong study of the Bible, I have looked for an overarching theme, a summary statement of what the whole sprawling book is about. And I've settled on this statement. God gets his family back. You know, it all begins in Genesis with a family who has God at the heart and center of that family. And then it goes all through that the Bible. And God's trying to bring his family back. But in Revelation, it all ends with the family and God at the heart. And this family, they are marching into eternity together. There are times in my life when I've lost my voice, like tonight, uh, nearly. But there are, you know, you know, laryngitis, and you can't hardly speak. I remember one time Dana got so bad that uh, she had to, I had to get a grease pad or whatever you call it with grease pencils, and she had to write messages to me, you know. And uh, that was real frustrating because I read real slow, and never but anyway, you know, I lost my voice. It was a natural thing to do. Uh, you get this inflammation in your vocal cords. But, you know, there are times in my life, and maybe you do too, where you kind of lose your voice as a witness for God. It just kind of goes away. You don't intend for it to happen, but you kind of just lose the inclination, lose the heart to use your voice as a witness for God, you know. And uh, I remember when I lived in McAllister, Oklahoma. It was my first place in ministry as far as full-time. And I was a youth pastor there, and it was my job every Saturday sometime to gas up our buses. We had three buses and a van, and I'd drive it up to the gas station or convenience store at the end of the road. And uh, Hardy Springs Road was the name of the road, and I'd, I'd fill them up. Well, there was a guy in there, and he noticed it was First Assembly of God, McAllister, Oklahoma buses. And he said, you know, you'll never catch me going to a church. And I got my voice. And I said, man, I said, there's preparation that you need to do for eternity. You know, wh wh what if God came to you and asked you, you know, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And he didn't have any answer. And I said, you need to think about that. 
And I said, uh, why don't you come to church tomorrow? Would you please just, you know, come as my friend and guest? Just sit there incognito, whatever you want to do. And uh, he just kind of looked at me, and I thought, well, that went nowhere. And uh, anyway, uh, my pastor was out of town, and he was somewhere, I think in Branson, Missouri or something. And uh, while I was in the pulpit, I looked up, and I saw the kids from the convenience store walk in the back, sit on the back row. And uh, I preached my message. You know, it wasn't necessarily a salvation message. But I gave an altar call, and that young man got out and walked to the front, gave his heart to Jesus. And the next time I saw him the next week, he was uh, there as a cashier there at the convenience store. I was taking buses up there to get him gassed up. I went up to it, went in there, and he has this huge cross hanging around his neck. And uh, he had gained his voice. He said, I gave my heart to Jesus, and I, I want to be a witness. I want to tell people about what I've done. And I, I thank God that I had my voice back. You know, and I, I think we all need to pray that we get our voice back, you know, that we can be an influence in bringing people into the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's simple as just inviting them to come to the house of God. You know, I, I don't want to rant. Okay, that's what my son-in-law calls it when I get really struck up here and start shouting a little bit. He calls it my rant. Okay, but I want to be a grace dispenser for the broken family of God. That's what I really want to do. Number three. Choose your moral location daily, and don't drift like Lot. Verse 20, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, that's kind of an interesting title for number three, okay? Choose your moral ground daily, basically, okay? There's something really solid about what the Scripture says concerning Abraham here. Abraham's posture is this. He remained standing. Do you guys use cruise control when you drive your car? Okay. It's really cool. You know, you punch that button, you're going down the turnpike or the highway, and it just maintains your speed, and you can keep it just at the right speed that the highway patrolman won't stop you. That's pretty cool. We drive down the road with that cruise control, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome, my but I wish we had life cruise controls. I wish I had a cruise control for my eating habits. I wish I had a cruise control for my exercise. I wish I had a cruise control to be kind to goofy drivers. I wish I had a cruise control to not smart off to obnoxious people. Okay? I wish I had a cruise control for my devotional habits. The trouble is these things are daily things, okay? And you just have to have a conversation with those things, maybe out loud where people think you're crazy or maybe just in your mind, I don't know. But you've got to have a conversation with the pizza if you're wanting to control your eating habits. You're saying you're a giant and you're not coming into my life, you're not coming into my mouth. You've got to have a conversation with the ice cream, okay? You've got to have a conversation when somebody cuts you off in traffic. I'm not going to react. Obnoxious people, I'm not going to smart off. Not going to happen, okay? There's no cruise control for those things. It's your personal responsibility. Abraham stands before the Lord, and he is in contrast with his nephew Lot. 
Lot seems to drift. Abraham stands. Lot seems to drift. Let's look at Genesis 13 at the character of Lot. Verse 12, Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. In chapter 14, Lot is dwelling in Sodom. First he's near Sodom, now he's dwelling in Sodom. In chapter 19, he is sitting in the gates of Sodom. And after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot asked to go to the city of Zoar. Bible historians say that Zoar is a mini Sodom. You see, he's drifting. Lot never seems to learn his lesson. And habitual sin morphs into addiction. Habitual sin is never on level ground, okay? You can say, I'm in control of this. I can give it up anytime I want to. Well, go ahead and give it a try. You say, I'm not addicted. And then I ask the question, how long have you been doing this? 15 years? Part of addiction is rationalization. An addict must finally say, I need help. Lot got into Sodom, and Sodom increasingly got into Lot. And folks, chemicals, cigarettes, alcohol, all of these things, none of them, that's not, I'm not just focusing on those as addictions. There are a lot more things that you can get sinfully addicted to. But you finally have to say, you know, I need help. I need help from God. You may have to ask help from other people to be accountable to, but you need help from someone. Number four, let's partner in prayer with authenticity and confidence. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Have you ever wondered why God bothers with this prayer stuff? After all, he knows already what we need. But one of the reasons is that God has invited us into a partnership with him. He has chosen to entwine himself with his people. And Abraham is repeatedly in scripture referred to as a friend of God. Abraham talked to God. Abraham continually prays to his God. And he is very blunt in his prayer. And by the way, it's okay to tell God how you feel. He says to God in this passage, won't you do the right thing? But that's a good part of his prayer. But his prayer is flawed. He says, the righteous shouldn't suffer. Uh-oh. He says the righteous shouldn't suffer. But Scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust. Jesus talked about the collapsing of the tower that fell on the righteous and the unrighteous. His prayer was fragile and flawed. What's the point? The point is don't stop praying because you don't think you're very good at prayer. My wife is a really good prayer, and that follows her everywhere she goes. One time we're having a miracle service, and Dana was praying. I gave her the microphone, and she just, she just prays heaven down. And one of my associates came to me and said, Scott, I love your preaching. I enjoy your preaching. He said, but if I ever have anybody praying for me, I want your wife. And I said, that's awesome. What a good partnership we have here. I'm not that good at it. 
And I'm sorry if that disappoints you. You know, God's used me in prayer and those kind of things, but I have a, I'm not a gifted prayer, all right? Uh, I start praying, and in about a minute, I've got on my mind my to-do list for the day, you know? I start wondering about things. Some of you may struggle with this, too. I don't know. But let's go on to number five. Know the disappointments and questions are part of faith because we don't have 2020 vision. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? And what's the result? Early the next morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising up from the land like smoke from a furnace. God didn't answer Abraham's prayer the way that he wanted it answered. God didn't give him an explanation of why he didn't answer it. Did you notice that in Scripture? He didn't say, well, you only found five righteous, so I went ahead and nuked the cities. Can you imagine? Abraham has already asked God, please spare the cities, spare the righteous. But Abraham's standing there looking at the cities burning and smoke rising. And I wonder if Abraham thought about saying to God, you know, this plan of me being a blessing to the world is not off to a really good start. My nephew's wife has turned into a pillar of salt. My first attempt at major prayer is sort of a disaster, and you haven't given me what I've asked for. That sounds kind of like an Abraham prayer. What's happening here? Abraham is standing in the gap of no answers. He's hemmed in by question marks, and he must trust God anyway. We talk a lot about faith in terms of getting what we ask for. You know, I'm just going to believe for this, and I'm going to believe for this, and I'm going to believe for that. And that's okay. But I know, because I'm aware of some of your stories in here today, that we have some anonymous heroes. You prayed, and the smoke is in your nostrils from the unanswered prayer. You didn't get what you asked for, but look at you. You're trusting God anyway. And I want to thank you for being a model of trusting faith. And I go back to Abraham's position, his posture, his moral position. You're still standing. You're still standing. You didn't get your way. God didn't answer like you wanted him to, but you're still standing, and you're a hero. Let's pray. Father, we love you.